there. Welcome to the Real World NP Podcast. I'm Liz Rohr, family nurse practitioner, educator, and founder of Real World NP, an educational company for nurse practitioners in primary care. I'm on a mission to equip and guide new nurse practitioners so that they can feel confident, capable, and take the best care of their patients. If you're looking for clinical pearls and practice tips without the fluff, you're in the right place. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review so you won't miss an episode. Plus, you'll find links to all the episodes with extra goodies over at realworldnp.com slash podcast. This week's video is an interview with Monica Carter, the nurse practitioner. If you don't follow her online already, she's on Instagram. She has her own website. She's a family nurse practitioner, and she has been practicing in the OBGYN setting for the last 13 years. So we took questions from the audience, including how she got into that setting, what her daily life looks like, her pet peeves and pearls of practice for nurse practitioners in the primary care setting to know, her favorite resources, and we touched on a lot of really common things that we see new nurse practitioners struggling with when it comes to women's health topics. Uh, she is just incredible and has so much wisdom and insight and so many pearls of practice to share with you, so I really hope you enjoyed this interview. Without further ado, um, I'm going to share my interview with you. Well, welcome, Monica. Thank you so much for being here. Would you introduce yourself? All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Monica Carter. I'm a family nurse practitioner in Washington, D.C. I do live in Maryland, and I love it. I work in obstetrics and gynecology. Um, prior to becoming an MP in OBGYN, I was a labor and delivery nurse, which I know is an uh, common pathway to being an MP and OBGYN, and I'm a mommy. I have three little ones, three two-and-a-half-year-olds, triplets, Bellamy, Caden, and Kennedy. So when I'm not working full-time, I'm mommying full-time. It's nice to meet everyone. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. And um, Monica and I have been talking about how we are both really chatty, so... <laughs> We're going to try to, there were so many questions, so many great questions. Um, we'll try to answer as many as we can. And if we want to do a part two, we could always, you know, do that too. But um, cool. Why don't we jump in? So um, what is your, what is like your regular, and I guess if you also want to talk about your story into like FNP into OBGYN, because I think that, um, I think there are a lot of nurse practitioners who are thinking about that, who really love women's health. Mm -hmm. um, so like how, it sounds like you were already in L&D, but going from family nurse practitioner to an OB setting, OBGYN setting, and then like what your kind of typical day is like and what kinds of things you're seeing. Yeah, so I knew, I knew from the beginning of time that I wanted to work with women. I mean, I went to an all girls high school. <laughs> I'm like a real, I like I'm a girl girl. So all girls high school, I was a cheerleader. I did dance in um, undergraduate. I'm in a sorority. And so it's only natural. Of course, I went into um, L&D, so labor and delivery. And even in L&D, I knew I wanted to continue to work with women. I was seeing women at the end of their pregnancy. So they, if they had diabetes or high blood pressure or preeclampsia or cholestasis, if they had all these diagnoses, I never knew what all went on before they got to me mm. and seeing different health outcomes made me think, Hmm, what if I could get in on the other side? 
the education side, the side where I'm guiding them and I'm holding their hand through their pregnancy and helping them, maybe I can help to improve some of these um, maternal health outcomes. So I thought, I wanna be a nurse practitioner. Interestingly enough, it, it sounds like, oh, well, why didn't you do WHNP, the Women's Health NP route, which I think is an incredible route, especially if you know you want to work with women. Um, interestingly enough, I think it's just the, the, the culture of the city, the culture of where you are sometimes can influence you. And everyone I knew, they were FNPs. Mm. Simple enough. I worked at a hospital that had a scholarship program that um, fed into my alma mater, Georgetown University. And I wanted to go to Georgetown and I wanted that scholarship and it was for FNP. Now to do WHNP, you had to do the dual nurse midwife program. And I knew I didn't want to deliver babies mm -hmm. for lifestyle reasons. I didn't want to yeah. be on call. I didn't want to work nights and weekends. I knew I wanted to have a family of my own. So I really didn't want to do that part of it, yeah. but, um, so I, so I couldn't do that program and that would have been full time. So really it was kind of logistically FMP just worked for me. Mm -hmm. And I plan to use and leverage my experience as an LMD nurse, um, my, my passion for the, for the specialty to market myself for a position in obstetrics and gynecology. Also, I had heard at the same time that some places don't you know, some places only accept FNPs. And at the time I'm like, am I gonna move? Am I going to go somewhere um, like Hawaii where the only choice might be like a retail clinic and I have to have an FNP or if I can't find a job. So for me, it was just a marketability thing. So to, as we said, I'm chatty. So this is why, see Liz, this is, this is the problem. I'm gonna be too chatty. To make a long story short, I love working with women. I want to improve um, health outcomes and the way women live their lives. So I knew I wanted to, be in obstetrics and gynecology. Um, but the FNP, it just kind of that route fell in my lap. I wish it was more thought provoking, but it was kind of like my mentors were FNPs. The program that had the scholarship was FNP. FNP it was. Well, I think that's super also encouraging though, because I think that there are a fair number of FNPs who love women's health. And it almost feels like that's a closed door, but it, I mean, it sounds like it's really regional and very job by job dependent. So. There's three MPs in my practice were all FNPs. Wow. Um, and there was an MP that I worked with prior who left, she moved to San Francisco and she was a women's health MP. And I will say, looking at her curriculum, just hearing her talk about certain things, it is more robust. It, it is more paid, it's more women's health centered. So I can't yeah. pretend it's not, but there are so many opportunities for FNPs um, to learn, to improve skills. I mean, the conferences these days are incredible. Wow. Uh, if you're in a supportive environment, on-the-job training, and that's with any specialty, there's going to be on-the-job training. So I definitely do not think it's a stretch to be an FMP wanting to be in a specialty. That's awesome. And that kind of ties into what are, what are the kind of, and I feel like you also, it's so wonderful that you have the FNP perspective too, in terms of the context of this conversation, because one of the things that I'm obsessed with as part of this platform is like, what is the scope of primary care and what is the specialty side and what are they saying about primary care being like, oh my God, can you just not, can you just not send me one more of that thing? So um, I'd love to hear about the context of what you see in a regular day, like what you're kind of day-to-day -day looks like and then that kind of ties into those like pet peeves of like what you wish primary care providers knew and like yeah. stop sending you or like did more first before sending well first i'll say i love that the nps in primary care and the nps in gyn we have become besties and it's like there's no judgment 
So it's like, okay, you know, it because I ask things too. I ask them like, uh, should I be managing this or should I be checking her back up to you? Um, I would say so on a regular day, I'm seeing all types of gynecologic conditions and I see OB patients up until 36 weeks. So that last month of pregnancy, we have them just see the obstetricians so they can really get comfortable and get prepped for delivery. Um, so I'm seeing acute visits like UTI and vaginitis. I'm seeing irregular bleeding, abnormal uterine bleeding. I'm seeing birth control consults. I see fertility consults. I see medication consults. Um, of course, I see annual exams, breast pain, breast lump. I, I actually, this is outside of, I would say, what an NP would normally see in obstetrics and gynecology, but I joined a hereditary breast and ovarian cancer screening team at Georgetown. And I'm a part of the genetic counseling team specifically for breast and ovarian cancer. So I'm really uniquely knowledgeable about that kind of stuff. And I, anyway, I'm a little bit of a nerd. So um, I, I, I see all kinds of things and I love it. You know, do I ever get bored? I'll say there, there are days and I'm like, I've seen a lot of yeast infections. I mean, it's <laughs> literally something in the water, literally and figuratively. There's something in the water. I mean, it's yeast everywhere. I've seen it all day. Um, I, I can't say 100% get bored of it because I think if you're a person who likes a specialty, you love to be proficient and you love to be an expert at a small subset of, um, of conditions. So I actually... I actually don't get bored because I like knowing what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I tip my hat off to the primary care in peace because it's like, you have to know a lot about a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they say you have to know a little bit a lot about a lot. No, you have to know a lot about a lot or, or how to find it or who to refer to. So I, I always tip my hat off to the primary care in peace because I look at their charts. And I'm like, oh, eight chief complaints. Whoa. <laughs> wow. Um, but so, so no, I don't get bored. And I will say that Often, as an MP in obstetrics and gynecology, you'll see patients who are coming in for their annual exam. So that's like your breast exam, your pelvic exam, your pap smear if it's due, maybe sexually transmitted infection screening. Maybe we'll talk about birth control or menopausal treatment. Um, and you'll find that during those visits, there are acute problems that come up. So it might be a preventative care visit that turns into that plus an acute visit. So there are, there, there are plenty of things that are interesting enough. And I think if you love the specialty itself, you won't really get bored. And if you ever get bored, and this is for any new nurse practitioner within the first five years of practicing, if you ever get bored, learn a new skill. I know it sounds corny and nerdy. Go to a conference, learn how to insert IUDs or Nexplanon, which is that subdermal implant that goes in your arm. Or, you know, talk to your boss about colposcopies. Look at the scope of practice in your state. See if that's something you can do. Vulvar biopsies, you know, suturing. I mean, learn a new skill and it really does get things. It, it, it spices it up. Me doing the genetic counseling now, it allows for me to do more telehealth, which means I get to be home, um, which, I, um, which I love. Don't tell anyone. Okay, everyone's going to know soon. Um, I mean, this is going on the internet, so. <laughs> it'll just be everyone who knows, but hopefully nobody's supposed to know or not supposed to know. <laughs> but I'll say learn a new skill. If you get bored, learn a new skill. Um, learn a new challenge. Try something new because as nurse practitioners, I mean, there's just so much we can do. Totally, totally. But what do I wish primary care providers knew? I know that's yes. what you mean. Yes, I want to know. You're like, oh my God. You're, you're, I mean, you're super nice. So I don't feel like you would be mad about anything. But like, do you hear that in, from your colleagues or 
Like, I think that like sometimes, like I know for me personally, like with, with fertility workups, I never really know where the line is for primary care. And I'm like you, like I kind of, I'm a professional nerd and I try to push the scope as much as I can, but at the same time, like, I don't want them to get mad at me. (laughs) So I'm like, I don't want to do the wrong thing. So I'm going to do step one. I think you need like an HSG. I don't know if you call it that, but hysterosalpingogram for like part of your workup, but like, I'm not going to order that. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) It's really impressive. Women's health imposter. I like try really hard. Um, but yeah, like I'm not going to order those tests, but I might do some labs, but I just, anyway, if there's like things that you wish people would do, or you're like really pleased when they do those things, that would be, that'd be super helpful. Yeah. I would say, I mean, so let's use, well, first I'm going to start with your example with the fertility workup. You know, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't judge at all if a primary care said, hey, why don't you go to your GYN and talk about this? Mm-hmm. And let me tell you why. Some people, they are not great candidates for pregnancy at baseline. Mm-hmm. So I have some patients that might be a little bit older. They might have significant chronic conditions. And we do the fertility workup and we send them to the reproductive endocrinologist or for lack of better words, fertility specialist, like fertility center. And they're like, why did you send this person? She's uncontrolled. She's a brittle diabetic or, you know, she, she, is, she has uncontrolled diabetes. That's what I should say. She has uncontrolled diabetes. Her blood pressure is high. Her BMI is 45. We're not going to treat her and she's going to get a big fat bill. So, you know, I do like them sending them to us because we kind of pre-screen for the fertility center. So, you know, we say, you know, you have three chronic conditions and I really do want you to get pregnant. Do you mind doing a consult with one of our maternal fetal medicine specialists first so we can optimize pregnancy for you? Because unfortunately right now, none of the fertility centers in DC are going to accept you as a patient, which is the truth. You know, they want good outcomes as well. So, you know, they'll turn you away away for BMI. They might turn you away for certain chronic medical conditions. And that took a while for me to learn because I was like bright eyed and bushy tailed. I'm like, look, her AMH is good. She's going to get pregnant. Off you go. And they're like, Monica, you do realize she's a transplant patient, right? We got to talk about this. I'm like, oh, okay. What kind of Not transplant? Really. But you, I'm sorry. What kind of transplant? I mean, we've had trans, I mean, so we do high risk at our practice. So I've had um, kidney transplant patients. I've had, I've had patients on dialysis who are pregnant. Um, we have, <laughs> yeah. We, we see some really high-risk patients. That being said, this patient wasn't actually a transplant patient, but it's an exaggeration to say that sometimes, you know, the, the big picture is not something that we see because it's just not what we do every day. Mm. So I wouldn't expect primary care to do a workup. That being said, often, you know, baseline labs to see, does the person have PCOS or um, maybe a thyroid condition or something like that, or maybe they have an elevated prolactin, that's why their periods are off or maybe they're not ovulating because of their BMI. You know, I I do believe primary care has a great role in kind of saying, hmm, from Mm -hmm. our standpoint, you're pretty healthy. Let's send you to GYN and just see from their standpoint um, what it's looking like. The other thing is I would say, and this is like my favorite answer, if you're not sure, call a fertility center that's local. See if you can talk to one of the docs, which is what I did. And I wrote down everything she said. And I basically made a copy and sent it to everyone in our practice. This is what they want us to order. This is what they want us to stay away from. <laughs> this makes me so happy you're saying this, Monica. And I did not, I did not ask you to say that, just to be clear. Because I feel like a broken record being like, just call the specialist. Just call them. Just pick up the phone. <laughs> it's I mean, even the specialist called the specialist. Right? 
Yeah. I mean, and I work consider a specialty. We call the specialist. So I'll say, you know, they might want me to do, um, maybe they want an FSH or maybe they'll want an estradiol or maybe they'll want an AMH, which is the anti-mullerian hormone and the new, you know, craze of fertility testing. They might want me to do day three labs, but they might say, hey, can you go ahead and order an HSG? You can have it done here. Or can you go ahead and order her HSG? She can have it done in radiology at your, mm-hmm. at your office. Um, and then I've had some say, honestly, we would rather you just send to us. For me personally, as a, pro- as a provider, my hard, fast rule is if the patient has, and I mean, these are the weeds of it. So I don't want to see, I'm going to talk too much, but you know, unfortunately, most fertility centers around the country don't accept um, a Medicaid. Yeah. I think that's so, the tricky part of those patients. Like I never know where the line is and I'm like, I can do some, but I don't know where the hard stop is going to be and how much you're going to be on the hook for. So I'd rather you just talk to somebody else who knows the yeah. whole process. So for some of those patients who their insurance won't be covered at all at the fertility center, I find myself doing more. Mm-hmm. I'm ordering all the labs. I'm doing the HSG. I order the mm-hmm. semen analysis mm-hmm. and I'm doing literally everything possible to try to get them pregnant. And if you know, six months or so goes by and I'm like, ah, I've really exhausted everything I can do. Unfortunately, they'll have to pay out of pocket. Mm-hmm. Now for patients, otherwise, I, I say, look at, look at their age. You know, if they're 30 and they've been trying a year, send them. Yeah. You really don't have to do a workout. Just yeah. send them because yeah. it's time. And really, we don't want to waste their time. And I always think about that. Am I causing harm to the patient? Am I doing well by the patient? If yeah. They've been trying to get pregnant for a year. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and send them. Right. If they're 35 and they've been trying for tw- six months, send them. If they're 40, I just send them because time is truly of the essence. So I find a lot of fertility centers, they, based on age, they just want us to send them if they've been trying a certain amount of time. Now, if it's my 33 year old who's been trying six months and she's anxious, that was me. (laughs) Well, I wasn't 33, actually. I was actually younger, but the point is, what was I? I was 31. Oh my God, crazy. (laughs) I was, I was 27 and I was anxious. So I, was I, mean, I, I was 31. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Six months went by and I went to the other NP. I was like, Casey, I need labs because something's wrong with me. And nothing ended up being wrong. Everything was fine. It was a timing thing. So, you know, for those patients, I say do the labs, mm-hmm. do an initial workup. Um, but for, I, what, I, what I wish primary care providers knew, were, I mean, we're, we're a team. So I'll definitely say that kind of lean on each other. Mm-hmm. As far as it goes with pelvic exams, I always tell primary care MPs, if you're going to do a pelvic exam, go for it. If they have a GYN, you don't have to. I mean, mm. it, it depends on your own personal practice, but if they're going to see their GYN that year, we can do the breast and pelvic exam. Mm. And I share a lot of patients with our primary care MPs and they don't do breast or pelvic exam on those patients mm. and I, because they know that I'm going to see those patients. Yeah. But if you are everything for that patient and you're doing head to toe, if they have never had their cervix removed, it's there. Yeah. They have cervix. It's yeah. there. Just take a deep breath. <laughs> if you're thinking of a circle, kind of a circle as the vagina go way deep, deep, low, 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 and kind of slowly put the speculum up. So if the speculum looks like this, you want to go low, open it up, and oh, boop, you're going to see the cervix. Um, and I just, and I tell my students, I'm like, there's a cervix in there. Don't worry. Just take your time. Sometimes you need a longer speculum. Sometimes you need them to put their fist under their bottom. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they need to scoot closer down the table. Um, totally. But if you're doing exams, there's a cervix unless it's been taken out. <laughs> yes. And actually that brings to one of the questions from people, which is, um, I'm going to reference it specifically. So do you still perform PAPs on women that have had either a full or partial hysterectomy? It's like the question of the ages. 
this is the perfect segue. We're, I mean, we're doing speculative cervix and now we're talking inner cervix. That is truly, that's, that's the question of the year. It's the yes. question of the decade. It really oh. is. I talked about this when I was a brand new grad. Yes. And it's still like in the air. Yes. The answer is twofold. So do I perform pap smears on women who have had a full or partial hysterectomy? If the woman had a hysterectomy and they took everything, uterus, tubes, ovaries, cervix, everything's gone, but she had the hysterectomy because she was diagnosed with cancer, mm -hmm. you are still doing pap smears. Mm -hmm. You can look at current guidelines to see how often you can talk to, you know, gynecology, oncology, the gynoc on um, service to see if anything's changed. Should I do a pap? When in doubt, you can do one. The insurance company is going to still cover it yearly still at this point. It's 2021. I don't know when you're watching this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just in case this, you know, age is well. And yes. People are watching this Thinking in 2020. <laughs> um, if, if the hysterectomy was for, for cancer, they still need pap smears. It's going to be a pap of the vaginal tissue, vaginal, or some people call it vaginal cuff or cervical little stump. Just get in there with the spatula. You don't really need a brush. If you want to do two spatulas just to make sure you have enough cells, go for it. I would not use lubricant because it's probably going to skew the results because those cells are probably atrophic. You know, if the patient's a little bit older, it, it's gonna, there's less cellularity, it's scant. So you really want to make sure whatever you can get, you can get. So maybe you put a little water on the speculum if you want to be super nice um, in case they're a little bit dry, but uh, no gel for those patients. And yes, you're doing a pat for them. If they had a hysterectomy for the reason that most people do, you know, bothersome fibroids, heavy menstrual bleeding, or maybe they had it due to a birth issue uh, through pregnancy, um, find out if they have a cervix. A lot of people don't know if they have a cervix. They say, oh, I had a total hysterectomy. And I go in there and I'm like, you have a cervix. They're like, I do? I've had pap smear in 20 years. They and never know. They <laughs> never know. I always ask, do you know if they removed the cervix? And they're just like, nope. Like, do you have any records? No. It's either they don't know or they say they have nothing left. And I go in and I'm like, oh, there's a cervix here. And they're yeah. like, get out of town. I have a cervix. I'm like, yes, we need to do a pap smear. We're 10 years behind. So, you know, they, they leave it in place for a reason, right? It's kind of for like the pelvic floor support. Is that exactly. the main rationale? Okay. Exactly. Cool. And, and it's the same thing. You know, a lot of people say I have a total hysterectomy and they don't realize they have ovaries. So I often say, mm. you got your hysterectomy. Did you start having hot flashes or did you notice vaginal dryness or mood changes? Mm. or You know, I start asking questions to say, did you go into menopause? Yes. Because if we take the ovaries, we're taking the estrogen and right. menopause starts. Right. right? right. So I ask those questions because a lot of people don't know. And you know, when in doubt, get a pelvic ultrasound. Pelvic ultrasounds are, I mean, it's really low cost, low fuss, and it'll give you a lot of information. And you need to know if a person has their ovaries, especially if they have a family history of breast cancer or ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer. You wanna know, do they have their ovaries? So yes, if, yes for the pap smear for hysterectomy, no matter what, if they had cancer. Yes, if they have a hysterectomy with, uh, where they spared the cervix, so cervical sparing hysterectomy. Um, if they had a hysterectomy and they took the cervix and it was for fibroids or bleeding or any other reason besides cancer, no, they never need a pap smear again. Mm, awesome. And often, guys, you're going to be the one that tell the patient that. They're going to come to you and they're going to say, I don't know, check my chart. I don't know, can you look? I don't know. Tell me if it's in there when you get down there. And you're going to be nervous because it might be your third pap ever. <laughs> 
And it's okay to call so Holly and say, hey, can you look at this really quickly? Or, uh, you know, you said, okay, Mrs. Johnson, hold tight for one moment. I'm going to have Dr. So-and-so come in and just look behind me really quickly just to make sure. That's fine. You know, you want to get it right. So if you have to get a second pair of eyes, do not feel embarrassed. Totally. Oh my God. I love that so much. So a question about managing menopausal symptoms, choosing birth control, interpreting PAP results and medications in pregnancy. That is a lot of topics, but I think that there's a bottom line that you and I talked about. So what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, it, I, I think what it boils down to is when you're new, you want to make sure you're managing people correctly. Mm-hmm. And to do that, I think it's really important to know where to find information and also to be okay asking, be okay asking for help. So I'll start with menopausal symptoms. You know, menopause is such a, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a taboo topic in this country, mm-hmm. I find. Mm-hmm. People are scared to yeah. treat menopausal patients. People are scared to prescribe hormone therapy. Yeah. They're scared to start patients on it. They don't want them to get breast cancer. You know, um, back in the day, the, the medications aren't, were not as sophisticated and safe as they are today. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are, are nervous. They're like, uh-uh-uh-uh, she's having hot flashes. No, 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 yeah. no. Cool down the I room, stop eating spicy right food, now. and go to your GYN. Um, <laughs> Um, but you know, I found that, so ACOG, the American College of Gynecologists, they have an excellent Green Journal article on menopause. It's very long, but it's excellent. And really everything you need to find, it's in there. Um, up to date, I'm sure if you're watching this, you've used up to date, your preceptor is used up to date, you've heard of it at least. It has incredible algorithms about um, menopausal symptoms, different preparations of menopausal hormone replacement therapy. In general, you know, I tell my, my students and, and new NPs, if they're just having local symptoms, like just vaginal dryness or just pain during intercourse, you can treat locally. And local treatment is super safe. It's well studied. And, you know, we should be helping our women to feel better and, and live full lives. And for a lot of women, a full life includes intimacy. So, you know, we don't want to block them from that because we're scared to prescribe it. So a local topical um, preparation of estrogen cream or a little tablet or something like that, completely safe. And you can talk to the patient about the risks and benefits, but the studies are so great that we're not scared to prescribe those. You're also going to have patients who are having hot flashes. I'm talking hot. I had, and I'm going to be like, you don't have time for this story. <laughs> but the, the fast, the quick, the quick and dirty is I had a patient who was so miserable from her hot flashes. And I mean, and I'm smiling because in retrospect, she's like, oh my gosh, I was really off the deep end with that. But I mean, she really was wanting to end it all. I mean, she was talking like this. She's like, Monica. I can't live anymore. I'm so, I mean, and we got her feeling better so fast. So, you know, you're going to have women with systemic symptoms and you're going to want to treat them systemically. You can treat them with a combination patch. You can treat them with hormone replacement therapy pills. Um, But, you know, the ACOG Green Journal, up to date. And there's actually a free app called MenoPro. So M-E-N-O-P-R-O, MenoPro. It's completely free from the North American Menopausal Society. And it's like, it's like, Menopause. menopause for dummies. <laughs> I don't want to say it. I was like, how do I say, I'll say menopause it. I'll say for dummies? It. I was like, menopause 101. It's like menopause for dummies. And the thing is, don't feel embarrassed because this is like, these are, when you're in a specialty, there's just going to be stuff that uh, it, it's impossible to be taught the 
intricacies of every single thing while in school and on the job training is important but what school does teach you is generally what you should be doing how to find information and who to ask you know when something's wrong you know that a person shouldn't be um depressed because they're they're so hot you know what i mean yeah. so i love i love those three resources as far as birth control choosing birth control it comes with time as you become more comfortable prescribing you're going to feel more comfortable um kind of tweaking medications you're gonna you're gonna learn more about the different progestins you know every birth control yeah. pill has the same estrogen ethanol estradiol they're all the same but every birth control pill has a different progestin and they come in generations i think they're still called generations but anyway um and depending on the birth control progestin content, it's going to have a different effect on patients. So you might have a patient with PCOS, there might be a birth control pill that's better for her because mm -hmm. it's gonna help to block some of those, um, like andro, jo, andro, you might the- Androgens. <laughs> Androgenic like, effects, anti You either can laugh about it or edit it out, but you know, <laughs> Either one, I, I honestly am fine with either. But there might be birth control pills that are better for her. If a person's having breakthrough bleeding, maybe you're going to need to, to switch their birth control or increase the dose or change the progestin. Um, you know, generally there are certain progestins and you can, and like I said, UpToDate's a great resource. If you go through it, you can look and say, okay, the progestin norethindrone, it's going to make your periods much lighter. It's going to decrease bleeding. If you have a patient who wants a birth control pill, where they're not going to have a period or they're going to have a lighter period. Mm. Oh, I want one with Norethindrone. I remember Monica mm. talking about that. That's your low estrogen, your microgestin, um, your Junelle, et cetera. No disclaimers here. These are not sponsored. <laughs> no affiliations just, here. No. That's what it is. No affiliation. This is just complete facts. Um, so look, so as you learn those things, you're going to become more comfortable. I do share decision-making with my patients. So when we're talking about which birth control is my go-to, it's up to the patient. I go through all the options and studies have shown that we should start with the long acting reversible contraceptives and go down. So we should start with the IUDs and the subdermal implant, the next one on, um, we should technically the depo. Yeah. I have my own feelings about You're that. not a fan. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a fan. Uh, I will tell you guys a little, you know, clinical pearl. Uh, Depo does have about an average of a nine month return to fertility. So please don't start your patients who are thinking about getting pregnant within the next year on Depo because it's a sad, sad story when their period's not coming back and then it's irregular, et cetera. So that's just like a little clinical pearl. Um, I love the book Contraceptive Technology. Contrast, contrast a, circle, a bunch of dots in the front in a circle. Sure is. Yes. I remember that. I yes. love that book. I love Whoa. it. And in the middle, there are pictures of each pill pack. And I mean, first of all, I love this book and um, and I got the contraceptive technology book at the contraceptive technology conference. Again, no affiliations. It's just that great. It's a conference. It's in, I think it's San Fran, Atlanta, DC, and um, Boston. Every year they have it in every, in those four cities. And I think they're probably doing it virtually now. And it's, I mean, PCOS, menopause, birth control. You can get certified to place next one on. That's where I was certified. Um, Awesome. You learn how to place IUDs. I mean, it's incredible. And I bought the book there and the author signed it and everything. So that book is great. So contraceptive technology book, up to date, reproductive health access. It's a, yes. it's a website. Yes. It's great for your patients. Bedsider.org, another great resource. Yes. Great to do patient handouts, patient info handouts. Awesome. And I'll link to all of those below the video too. 
Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm saying a lot of resources, but the, but the, I just want you guys to know that, you know, you have, you have what it takes. You have yeah. what it takes. I was going to say, that's the bottom line is like resources and trusting yourself because I mean, clearly you are a wealth of knowledge with so many clinical pearls and also like they have what it takes too to like practice, you know, mm -hmm. get the practice to do it for sure. I love those resources. That's awesome. Yeah. So Liz will link those, those, because that contraceptive, I mean, the fact that she even knows it has a little dots around the outside. I love it. And it has every pill pack inside. So if your patient says, well, what, you know, you know, if you tell them, okay, you're going to take three weeks of pills. And then that last week is a placebo. Then they get the pill pack and there's only three lines and they're like, well, wait a minute. So sometimes I'll just check and say, oh, actually this is one that has three weeks and you have to just break for a week. And that's so good. Oh, I clearly did not utilize that book. I bought it for grad school, but I was like, I don't know what to do with this, but I love that amazing. Book. And there's like headlines, like your patient's having breakthrough bleeding, do this. Your patient's having, you know, breast tenderness or pelvic pain, do this. Your patient's having acne, switch to this. I love oh, it. That's so good. This is a good book. Oh, um, that's so good. Thank you. Have results, ASCCP guidelines. Yes. It's there's costs $10, I think either $10 a year or $10, but yeah. There's a, um, there's an app for that. There's yes. <laughs> and that's one thing I'll say for primary care providers. One thing I think in GYN, we want you all to know is to check the guidelines because often patients are sent to me for a colposcopy who don't need a colposcopy. They just need to repeat the pap in a year and they get there and they're like, I drove all the way here and I paid a copay for you to tell me I don't need to be here. And I'm like, we can talk about something else. Like I feel terrible. I don't know. Um, so I want primary care providers to just check the guidelines too and feel okay saying like, you know, these are the guidelines we use. This is your PAP result. Looks like we can repeat in a year. If you want, you're welcome to see your GYN for that repeat or come back to me. Something like that. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so yeah. And then medications and pregnancy. I think that was the other one. And I'll yeah. say the medications and pregnancy, um, broken record, of course, like up to date stuff like that. There's a site called Reprotox. You do need a subscription. Um, but the great thing is like our whole practice uses the same login and password that our boss got the, prescri the prescription, look at me, subscription. Um, and that basically you put the medication in and it brings up all the data as it pertains to pregnancy. Mm. Excellent. And I like that because, you know, medications and pregnancy, everyone says, Monica, what's safe? Can I use this? Can I use this? It's again, it's a, it's a discussion. It's a, it's a discussion with your patient because there are not a lot of clinical trials with pregnant patients who are volunteering to try medication. So a lot of these are retrospective. We're looking back at pregnant women who were on those medications. I mean, how did it look? Some of them are animal studies, but it's just to say that that's a little bit more sophisticated. And sometimes we refer to the maternal fetal medicine and say, you know, this is the medication she's on. Her psychiatrist needs her to stay on it. Um, we want her to stay on it because we want her to have a, a mentally healthy pregnancy as well. We would like for you to counsel her about risks to the fetus, you know? So as far as medications and pregnancy, don't feel bad asking, you know, don't feel bad being a specialist asking a real specialist. I mean, MFM is like a whole, I mean, they are like, in the GYN world, they're like, they're like God. I mean, they're like the smartest people ever. They're so smart. Um, That's awesome. yeah. <laughs> do we, and, and this is maybe a silly question, but do you, do you ever get people like, do people see you first and then you refer to maternal fetal medicine or do people directly go to maternal fetal medicine in your experience? It just depends on the practice, um, not practice standard, but the, 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 the flow of the practice mm -hmm. in our practice, they love 
course for them to see the nurse practitioners first because we're so detailed and we do have longer slots with patients. So I'm able to do a really, so sometimes I'll see a patient for onboarding into our practice as a pregnant patient who is a really high risk patient and I'm going to go through their records and I do their history, Mm -hmm. I do their physical, um, I really make the chart nice and put it on a silver platter and then say to the end of them, here you go. And they do the counseling. I'm kind of kidding, but you get what I'm saying. They want them to see us first because we're one, it's going to be easier to get in with us. Um, and because they're doing consults all day or they're doing ultrasounds all day. So we're going to check the baby. We're going to talk to them about the practice, our, um, our practice model that we have men and women and students it's a teaching mm-hmm. hospital so they they do see us first now a lot of times primary care will refer to mfm which is fine and the mfm's um administrative assistant just says okay you'll see dr so-and-so on thursday and you'll see monica on monday just to kind of get in and get all your information because those consults are long i'm not gonna lie you know the mfm they're talking for i mean when i was pregnant with triplets My MFM consult, and these are, I mean, I've been there 13 years. So these are people I've known forever. My MFM consult was an hour. They talked to me for an hour. And I'm going to be honest, some of that stuff, I'm like, you don't say. (laughs) Am I supposed to have ever heard this? What is this? You know, so I will say their job is to counsel. Um, So it is nice for them to kind of be established in the practice first. But as for primary care, just go ahead and refer them to the specialist. And if their practice has them see the gynecologist or obstetrician first, or, you know, you can let them worry about that. But referring them to a specialist says, this is a high-risk pregnancy and I need a high-risk doctor to see this patient at some point. Um, So last question. Um, One of the common questions that I get um, for new grads that I had myself was when I would find the cervix, finally, um, sometimes it looks like a textbook cervix where it's like pink and smooth and nothing else is going on. And then there's other times where there's like redness or it seems like irregular margins, or maybe there's some growths on. And I think for me, it would freak me out. I think anything would freak me out as a new grad with physical findings that didn't like match a textbook, like ears, like all that stuff. But like, what is the guidance that you have for new grads about looking at different cervixes um, in terms of like, should they, like, I think the question that people have is, do I do a pap every time to see if it's like cancerous looking? Do I send them to GYN every time? Like what are, yeah. What guidance do you have about assessing cervixes yeah i will say i have seen some services where i was like oh wow wow <laughs> wow what's so happening this? um we now have the capture app at my job where you could take a picture which i i'm gonna be on it you could take a picture and it flows straight into the chart and and it's like Fancy. it flows straight into the chart and it's like a thing that the patient can says they stick and watch it and it goes out on your phone. To this day, I haven't used it because pulling out my phone to oh, take a that's picture awkward. down there, I'm just not comfortable yet. Yeah. But if your practice has that, you can always do that and it can capture and you can send it to someone else to look at quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's if you're like me and you don't want to pull your phone out, take a picture. I would say as far as like red flag. So any lesions on the cervix can be thought of as a red flag. Um, but some of them are normal. So think of a cervix like a face. If a person has a pimple, 
it's something on the face, but it's not harmful. If they have freckles, it's something on the face, but it's not harmful. Mm. Your pimples and your freckles are kind of like Nabothian cysts. So they're these little, they usually kind of appear yellow on the cervix mm. or flesh tone. And they're, they're, they're completely normal and they're benign and they're not problematic. But a lot of PCPs will send the patient to me and say, hey, she has lesions on her cervix, check it out. And they're just Nabothian cysts. Mm. Another thing I see often that does look kind of scary is called ectropian. So when the, um, you know, the cervix looks like a donut, in just like a donut, it has a little donut hole. The endocervix, so the inside of the cervix, those cells are kind of beefy red and they're, um, they're immature, they're young. So when they express themselves on the outside, it's, it looks like um, cervicitis or it looks like an inflamed cervix or a uh, cervix that's you know red and angry and you're like, uh-uh, spicy meatball, something's wrong. I know this is not right. It's ectropian and it's normal. Um, patients who have ectropian sometimes have bleeding during intercourse. So they might come to you and say, hey, I'm having spotting and during intercourse, but I don't have pelvic pain and everything else is normal. You look for sexually transmitted infections. You look for vaginitis, everything's normal. And you look at the cervix, like, oh, there's ectropian there. So that makes a little bit of sense. And birth control pills can help. So putting them on some hormones. Um, birth control period can help with ectropian, but it's kind of like they'll grow out of it. So, you know, when they get into their 30s, it should be on. Uh, so these are the kind of things that are normal. But to answer your question, if you see anything on the cervix, I would do a pap smear. If they haven't had one in the, in the past year, I would do it. And if you're concerned, send them to GYN. Because it's always better to be safe than sorry. And it gives the patient um, some reassurance. You can say, you know, this is probably completely normal. But, you know, I know the gynecologists, they see, you know, they'll they deal with this every single day, all day, mm -hmm. just, you know, make an appointment with them and just have them do a quick exam just to make sure. And you can reassure the patient. I'm not really worried. I did a pap smear. Um, and when the results come back, I'll call you, but mm -hmm. maybe just to have an extra set of eyes. And I think that that's fine. Um, but I would say do a pap if they haven't had it. Now, if they had a pap smear within the last year and you see an abnormality, I would just send them. Yeah. I would send them because I mean, often that's our first screening too over in, in GYN. And you know, if we see something really abnormal, we might treat with antibiotics. Um, if you see something that is like, oh my gosh, I think I heard of this in school. It looks like strawberry. So, you know, like strawberries have those little seeds. Mm -hmm. A strawberry cervix, I mean, it truly looks like a strawberry. Awesome. And you might start thinking it might be, you know, trichomonas or it might be um, an infection. So, you know, things like that. So yes, send to us, don't feel bad. I have personally seen things that I'm like, We'll do a pap smear. I'm going to do some vaginal cultures. Um, we're going to just, totally. and a lot of times everything comes back normal. Yes. And it's just, yes. it's and I just think like that everyone's face is a little bit different. It's just their cervix. Yeah. And I think that's like kind of almost a rite of passage for nurse practitioners to like not be able to sleep at night because you're thinking about that cervix that you should have done a path on. I mean, not speaking from experience at all, um, but like just, just do what helps you sleep at night and what is the safest option for that patient? Because doing a path is a very relatively non-invasive low cost test overall. So I love that. I actually have a, I just sent somebody, I wish we worked close by. I just sent somebody for a vulvar lesion um, that I wasn't sure what it was. So I'm looking forward to those results. I need to talk to my local GYN because I have a newer practice that I work with. So I get to call them. And and I, and I would say that as far as like, if you see something on the vulva on the skin, vulvar biopsies, I mean, yeah. I tell people just do it. 
just do it because a lot of times another issue is you know we start treating what we think it is so you're seeing something and you're like you know what this is lichen sclerosis i know lichen sclerosis i'm seeing some loss of um architecture of, of the clitoris and and it's fusing and it's a little bit harder and it's hypopigmented like this is textbook lichen sclerosis and you start treating with clobetazole which is a really strong steroid which will skew a vulvar biopsy so say you start treating with that and it gets worse and worse and worse and you're like uh oh spaghetti so you know, i'd say people you know what biopsy there are old school docs a lot of them they will not start treating without a biopsy they want to know what it is you know because we do see vulvar cancer and it does mirror other um you know vulvar dermatosis so yeah never feel bad for sending for vulvar biopsy um never you know at all at all so that. yeah i love that and i will also say this is one more clinical pearl which is something that I kind of, I learned it earlier on, but I started really realizing it later. When people come in for a regular bleeding, part of the workup can be a pap smear. Yeah. So cervical cancer, one of the symptoms is a regular bleeding. Um, ovarian cancer, one of the symptoms is bloating and increased discharge. So you might have someone who's like, yeah, I've been kind of bloated and not, mm. I'm like, oh, how's your appetite? You know what? I haven't really been that hungry. Or I'll take a bite and it's like, I'm full. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, in any vaginal discharge? And they're like, how did you know? Like I've been, I've been dry for years and now I've discharged. So these are kind of things that, you know, as you start learning conditions and those symptoms, yeah. it'll help to tailor um, your history. But until then, when you're new, you just ask every single question you could think of. Oh my God. I love this. I, I did not tell you to say that. Because <laughs> I, I say the same thing. I totally like it helps. I mean, ask all, just ask it, <laughs> ask it, ask it. You'll be surprised. And I mean, I've had patients where I just happened to ask a couple extra questions and I'm like, Oh my, really? Okay. Well, let's, okay. Well, we got to start over because now we have, there's something else going on, you know? So, um, yeah, so that, that's kind of like my, my tips for, as far as when you see the cervix, never be afraid to do a pap smear. If you've done it within last year or you have normal results within last year, send them. If you see something abnormal in the vulva, biopsy. Um, you know, if you if you want to treat someone with genital warts with home therapy for a month, you can always treat it and say, come back if it's not better, or come back in a month and let me reevaluate. And I and I say, um, and I'm this is gonna be my parting words, I promise. For for though for nurse practitioners who are within the first few years of practice, it's always a good idea to have a follow-up plan. It's always good to say, you know, if you're not feeling better in a week, if it's getting any worse, I want you to come back in. I want you to send me an email. Document that follow-up plan. Document, this is the plan. Patient verbalizes understanding. She's going to call me if it's getting worse or if it's not better in a week. And then have a plan. Say, you know what? We treated you, um, we're treating you empirically for BV and yeast. Your results come in, they're normal. But she's like, oh, but I'm feeling much better with the medication. Great. She might start taking the medications like I've, I've, it's getting worse down there. And we're like, okay, stop the medication, come in. So make sure patients understand that they're not on their own. You know, they, we're, we're, we're trying something, you know, we're not always right. Um, as you grow in practice, often you'll be right, but sometimes you'll be shocked. I've had patients I've treated that it's like clearly general herpes. Like it's, there's no, there's no doubt, but because I've been doing this long enough, I always tell people, this is what it looks like clinically. Yeah. And this is a, this is the treatment and it does not hurt to start this treatment. It can only help. But if you're not getting significantly better, we have to start thinking some other way. So, and I've had patients with some serious staph infections that 
it wasn't herpes. So sometimes when I look and I'm like, this is on the mom's pubis or in the inner thigh. And I'm like, this is kind of aggressive for herpes, but it looks like herpes. I'm like, okay, here's what we'll do. We're going to do the swab for herpes. We're going to treat you with Valtrex or acyclovir or whatever you want to do. And then I'm going to also do a general culture just to see what grows. And sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, you have like a, a skin infection and we treat them for skin infection and like, you know, with Keflex or whatever, or Bactrim, if you want to cover from, and it's like better. And they were like, okay. Awesome. And they're like, oh my God, I'm so happy. And I'm like, I am too. I, oh. I'm shocked. So just to say that, you know, sometimes it might not be what you think it is, but as long as your patient knows how to reach you and knows that they can contact you and follow up if it's not getting better or if it's getting worse, um, it, it, it really optimizes their health. It covers you as a clinician and it really makes for a good provider patient relationship. That's awesome. Oh, Monica, you're the best. I wish I could work with you and be your patient. <laughs> I would love to work with you. I feel like you're the best, Liz. Oh, thank you. You're so sweet. Thank you so much for being here. Um, where can people find you? So I am at Monica the NP on all channels. So on Instagram at Monica the NP, Facebook Monica the NP, and my website is monicathenp.com. Reach out to me if you need anything. My specialty is teaching nurse practitioners how to negotiate, teaching nurse practitioners how to transition into the business of being an NP, which yes. gets me so excited. Um, yes. So as you start interviewing and reach out to me. Yes. I mean, you have the compensation course. I, I yes. talk about it like all the time, but if you want to tell people about that too, go for it. Sure. So I created the compensation course. So it's a guide for nurse practitioners to learn how to negotiate their dream job. We go through the job hunt, the job search, interviewing, and then we get really into the thick of salaries, how to compute your salary, how to ask for a raise, mm. um, what are RVUs, what are AVUs, how is my bonus calculated, how do I create a bonus. Um, it's a lot about compensation. And it's not just about money. So, you know, a great job will pay you well, but a great job also, um, it, it, uh, it provides longevity. So maybe it's good hours, money for CMEs, um, maybe you have a supportive, you know, workplace. Education. There are other things that part of that compensation package that matter that's not necessarily salary. So we go through all of that and I do, and I do review contracts. So my students will bring me their offers, their contracts, we'll go through them. We'll do counter offers, my favorite. Um, and I do a lot of word for word scripts for people uh, just because I know what you guys want, but no one knows how to say it. Mm -hmm. um, so I help you to feel confident to ask for more so that we as a profession, all of us as NPs can continue to push the envelope. Yeah, so good. And your students' results are just so amazing. It like gives me chills. It's so good. You're amazing. That's how I feel about your students with everything you do. <laughs> Oh, you're so sweet. You're so sweet. Well, thank you so, so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. If you haven't grabbed the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, head over to realworldnp.com guide. You'll also get these videos sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and bonuses I really just don't share anywhere else. Thank you so very much for watching. Hang in there and I'll see you soon. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and tell all your NP friends so together we can help as many nurse practitioners as possible give the best care to their patients. 
If you haven't gotten your copy of the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, head over to realworldnp.com slash guide. You'll get these episodes sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and extra bonuses I really just don't share anywhere else. Thank you so much again for listening. Take care and talk soon.